Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Mirrens. On February 3rd, 2021, Canada designated the Proud Boys as a terrorist organization, along with what it called three other ideologically motivated extremist groups, three Al-Qaeda affiliates, five Daesh-slash-ISIS affiliates, and Hezbollah Mujahideen, um, which presumably is some Mujahideen movement or group. Many in the media noted uh, that the designation of the Proud Boys in particular as a terrorist organization would have immigration consequences, which is today's topic. Deanna and I are joined by Hart Kaminker, an immigration lawyer in Toronto who has an active litigation practice. Hart has experience representing individuals from Bangladesh who were members of the Bangladesh National Party, or the BMP, as well as a few other individuals accused for being members of terrorist organizations. Back to the BMP. Whether the BMP is a terrorist organization has become an ongoing controversy in Canadian immigration law, largely due to inconsistencies in decision-making or in decisions and uncertainty over how to apply the term terrorist and what it encompasses. In today's episode, we discuss that controversy, how membership in a terrorist organization is determined under Canadian immigration law, whether the way Canadian visa officers apply the standard could encompass other organizations such as QAnon or even the Republican Party, um, and whether the designation of the Proud Boys as a terrorist organization encompasses the term that what constitutes terrorism uh, might become broader um, as well. And I should note that when I say whether the Republican Party is a terrorist organization, some people will probably scoff at that. Uh, But remember, the test and what we're talking about is not whether we think it's a terrorist organization, um, but whether under the test that Canadian immigration law applies, it would be reasonable for an officer to determine that it was an organization that was involved uh, in terrorist activities. And I think that as you listen to the um, episode today, and especially as Hart discusses the Bangladesh National Party, who is or which is accused of being a terrorist organization, largely because it has called for general strikes that occasionally turned into riots, you can see some parallels uh, between that and what occurred at the Capitol building on January 6th. So it's not as crazy a notion as it might seem, at least in the context of Canadian immigration law. Anyway, one thing that Hart mentions in passing is the Supreme Court of Canada decision in Suresh v. Canada, Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, a landmark 2002 Supreme Court decision. Hart mentions the case, and you'll hear the word Suresh mentioned a few times, but we don't actually get into the decision itself, so I thought I'd take a minute to quickly explain what that decision was uh, in this introduction. So in Suresh, the appellant was a convention refugee from Sri Lanka. Uh, He was detained on the basis that he was a member and a fundraiser for the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, an organization alleged to be involved with terrorism in Sri Lanka. The Supreme Court had to address whether the word terrorism as defined in Canadian immigration law, was unconstitutional and vague. And it found that it was not, 
and articulated that terrorism includes, quote, any act intended to cause death or serious bodily injury to a civilian or to any other person not taking an active part in the hostilities and a situation of armed conflict, when the purpose of such act, by its nature or context, is to intimidate a population or to compel a government or an international organization to do or to abstain from doing any act, end quote. Anyway, we'll get into it. If you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can find my contact information at larley.com, L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M, or on Twitter at Smearens, S-M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S. Deanna's contact information can be found at mccraylaw.ca, M-C-C-R-E-A-L-A-W dot C-A, and Hart's information can be found at cummingkerlaw.ca. Dot com. That's Kaminker, K-A-M-I-N-K-E-R-L-A-W dot com. And I hope you enjoy today's episode. Section 34, sub 1 of Canada's Immigration and Refugee Protection Act provides that, quote, a permanent resident or a foreign national is inadmissible on security grounds for, and then section C, engaging in terrorism, or section F, being a member of an organization that there are reasonable grounds to believe engages, has engaged, or will engage in acts referred to in paragraph a, B, B1, or C, C being engaging in terrorism. So why don't, there's a lot of words uh, that need to be defined in there. So why don't we start with terrorism? What is terrorism under Canadian immigration legislation? Okay, so terrorism is not defined in Canada's immigration legislation. So that's I believe, and it has posed a problem for decision makers because they've had to look elsewhere in order to find that definition. The two primary places where they've looked has been the criminal code definition, because the criminal code does have a definition of terrorism, and as well as Suresh, which is the other case which um, provided some, or did provide a definition, Supreme Court decision that did provide definition of terrorism. And I think the I think what it is, is, or what it's been defined as, is acts that are committed or perpetrated against civilians for the purpose of, I guess, sowing fear amongst the civilian population in order to compel a government to take out a particular, to, to do particular actions. So that's what I, you know, very sort of simply in a few sentences, what I think the jurisprudence, you know, both at the federal court level as well as the immigration division where this section would be considered as you know has defined it as and i think if you take a look at jurisprudence in the federal court in most cases and i wouldn't say all cases but in many cases it's it there are they have identified are there organizations that can be described as you know as as organizations that are outside of the government um, that are trying to compel the government in the country in which they're operating to do certain things, or maybe even 
you know, some of these obviously are, are transnational as well. Many of them are. One of the ones that are probably more well known to people are transnational and are, you know, perpetrating particular ideology. And so just to be um, clear, there's no actual requirement that they be listed or formally declared by the government of Canada as a terrorist organization in order to for someone to be con- determined by immigration authorities to be a part of a group that has committed terrorism. That's correct. They do, they do not have to be on that list. I think it's probably, you know, if, if the organization to which the individual belongs to is on the list, and that's, I think, certainly, um, you know, guidance to a, to somebody who's making a decision about whether or not the organization is a terrorist organization. Uh, if it's not on the list, it doesn't have to be. I think there certainly is an argument, and there is some jurisprudence to this effect, but that's something I think a decision maker can take into consideration as well, that if, if the Canadian government hasn't designated it as a terrorist organization, you know, that might be a factor, it's not a decisive factor, but might be a factor in determining whether or not the organization actually is engaging in terrorism. Yeah. And I think that for the purpose of uh, inadmissibility, like if someone has carried out a violent act against civilians, it's generally not that controversial as to whether there is a inadmissibility provision, whether it's criminal inadmissibility, committing violence in general, subversion or terrorism that might apply to the person. A lot of the debates arise over what membership is. Although, as we'll get to, there are uh, certainly, and I know you're going to speak to this in the context of some political parties, whether actions that they may have promoted um, involve, will constitute terrorism. So maybe I'll take that back. But let's get into the, um, the two, I think, confusing components of being a member of an organization that has engaged in terrorism. What is an organization? So, again, I, guess I don't think organization is not defined anywhere in the Act. So, I would, I, I, although I, I believe it is defined, um, like a criminal organization is defined, I believe, with respect to, um, hmm. I guess, smuggling people into the country. But, uh, but an organization, I, I would say, would have to be a group of people who are organized, uh, to carry out a particular purpose, so uh, that—that's what I would say that an organization is. So, if you have a group of people who are organized around a particular ideology and have a, have a purpose of promoting a particular ideology or a particular political viewpoint, then that would be um, that would be an organization. And, and I, I think again, if you know, in some cases, it's. It's probably easily proven because there are organizations with heads and subgroups and subheads and other things like that. And there's lots of evidence to suggest that groups of people, a group of people organize to promote a particular ideology. In other cases, it's probably not so clear. Yeah. Is the is the reasoning that goes into this organization similar to what we see under Section 37? Uh, we've talked about you know organized criminality on the podcast. I, I think Steve um, about sometimes they'll just look at whether or not uh, three or more people with the same 
purpose constitutes a group? Um, is it a similar type of reasoning that they look at, or is there something separate that goes into considering what an organization is comprised of? Um, no, I think the reasoning is probably similar. I mean, obviously, in the criminal organization, you don't have to have a lot of people to, to do that. Uh, so, so probably, you know, I would say something more formal. I think if we're taking a look at the kinds of groups that have been labeled or, or where where the minister had where reports have been written against people under section 34 i mean they generally are relatively well defined groups i think so because you usually have some kind of religion that they would have a religious ideology or a political ideology uh so i so i think i think perhaps what's happened more recently in the united states would pose greater questions with respect to the issue of organization. But I think if you take a look at the history, certainly in the federal court of Section 34, usually around groups where they've had evidence to suggest that, you know, they, they are well-known groups having, having carried out activities, on, you know, whether transnationally or within their own country. And so the kinds of groups, so, so it can be a political party, a, an organization can be, a, can, can be a military. So, you know, you can have they can catch you under well, maybe not so much terrorism, but under other uh, other elements such as subversion of a government. Uh, they can catch you if, uh, as under Section 34.1f, if you've been a member of the military, that might have been involved in what might be perceived to be a, a military coup. So, think how an uh, so you can have political parties as well, and then you can have insurgent groups within a particular country, as well, that can be designated as. Um, as terrorist groups. So, you know, I would say that, you know, if you have two or three people, you know, gathered around a particular purpose who carry out an act, uh, I think it would be, in my view, I think it would be, a, you know, it would be a push to say that that's an organization. And I think maybe that's where there's a little bit of a distinction between Section 34 and Section, I would, and Section 37, where when you're carrying out crimes, you can have, I think, a smaller group of people who um, who, are, who are conspiring to carry out, who are organized, to, who are conspiring to carry out certain crimes. So, I mean, obviously, uh, I mean, the, I know it's obvious, but you know, drug trafficking would be, yeah. I guess, one. Section uh, 37 is inadmissibility for organized crime. Yeah. Um, and looking at some of the cases, uh, I note that Formal Borderlines uh, podcast guests and former Supreme Court Justice uh, Marshall Rothstein yeah. defined uh, a terrorist organization as, quote, a loosely structured group that does not apply the niceties of agency law. Um, and another uh, couple definitions I've seen uh, thrown about is that it's a community of interests and thoughts and possible regular meetings with person who are pursuing the same goals. And there is also this discussion, it seems, about um, that simply having a shared ideology doesn't mean that there's an organization. I, I think, I, yeah, I would agree with that. I think simply having a shared ideology doesn't mean that there would be an organization. I would think that, again, you, you, you can have a group around a particular, a, a, I think there has a, a group of people or groups of people around a particular organization, around a particular thought, 
you know, particular you know political ideology or any other other kind of ideology that people might have. So, but I think just sharing the ideology itself, um, and I think there also has to be an idea to to promote, if that's the right word. I'm not sure if that's the right word. Promote that ideology yeah. through some means. So I think sharing simply sharing the same ideology wouldn't be sufficient. Hmm. And what about membership? You have to be a member of the organization. What uh, what does it mean to be a member? So it's it's very broadly defined, and I think that's one of the big problems with Section 34, 1F, uh, is, is, is it's extremely broadly defined. So certainly in my experience, um, membership can simply mean being a member. Like you, you, you have... Uh, in some cases, it's obvious. So you've joined a particular organization that may have a, um, a particular means of joining. Uh, the other, I think, would be that you have um, participated in meetings of that organization. It could be as simple as that. Uh, it could be participating in promoting, in some ways, that organization's ideology. It could be as simple as that. So I, I think it can be very tangential in my view and I so it's extremely broad which I would say is a big problem with section 34 1F because it sweeps up it has the potential to sweep up and certainly I've seen it in my own practice sweeping up individuals who I don't think the section is intended who are not security threats to Canada and I don't think it's intended necessarily to be swept up by that section so from yeah. what I understand, it could apply equally to the director of that organization, to the medic, to the janitor, and exactly. to uh, to all of those people equally, and that these definitions are not arising from the legislation itself, but from this common law definition that membership is membership is membership. Exactly. It's membership. So, you know, you, you, you can't, you cannot, you know, it's difficult, I think, it, I would say even cannot extricate yourself from that section by saying well okay, maybe that group over there was doing those horrible things but you know I'm over here and I didn't know anything about it so you can't it's it's difficult to even extricate yourself from that I, I would I think it's difficult that that would be my view just that's just how broad the membership is so so, so I think there can certainly and especially if you have organizations that um, you know have let's say a political wing and an armed wing, and they mm -hmm. may be very distinct wings of the same organization. And somebody may be in the political wing, and then they might say, "Well, I don't know anything about you know I had nothing to do with what the armed wing is doing." You know, they might say, you know, even though you know they were a member, maybe at a local level, not at a high level, they could still be caught by the section. Now, typically when you're talking about admissibility practice, like let's just do um, a comparison between, let's say, misrepresentation jurisprudence and uh, Section 34 uh, jurisprudence. In, in misrepresentation jurisprudence, there's a whole there's a whole component of the analysis which looks at the materiality. So yes, there's a misrepresentation, but whether or not that misrepresentation is actually material. Um, so like let's say you've left out a fact, but could that 
left out fact have impacted on the decision. So, you know, and so it sort of seems to me that when you're talking about something, we haven't really gone to what are the what are the consequences of an inadmissibility for Section 34? And I think, you know, we'll get to that. But let's just suffice it to say that the, the, the consequences of this type of inadmissibility are more severe than any other type of inadmissibility under the Act. But from what uh, I'm sort of jumping ahead, perhaps, but um, I just would love for you to talk to us a little bit from your practice as to the either the presence or the absence of this kind of like relevancy analysis in terms of the section 434 jurisprudence like um when we're talking about membership it seems like what you're saying is that there's like a total absence of this kind of assessment as to like yes you're a member but like so what um and i'd love to hear just like with examples in terms of the cases that you've worked on okay so i, I guess the best example and Probably where I've had my where where I had the most experience with respect to the or where I had the most cases or files with respect to municipality is to do with um, the political party in Bangladesh, the Bangladesh Nationalist Party. So I would say about and, and I and I happen to represent a lot of Bengalis in my practice. So I would say about maybe five or six years ago there was a and, and it still exists today a move to um, write reports against individuals who had written, let's say, in the context of a claim for refugee protection that they were involved with the BNP, that would be the basis of, of their fear of persecution, They're the opposition party in Bangladesh, uh, and that it, because of their membership in that party, uh, they're caught by Section 34.1F, because they say the BNP is doing two, two things, one, engaging in terrorism, and two, trying to subvert the government that largely was with respect to not the most recent elections but the other the, the elections before this which i'm trying to remember i think it was like 2014 2015 um when the there's a little bit of a history but the awami league changed some of the rules so to speak about how elections are run in bangladesh and that led to um, a lot of protests on the part of the bmp and uh and then you know, allegations of a widespread fraud in, in the election process, which also led to protests. That was the genesis, I think, of where the action by the Canada Board Services Agency came from, even though, you know, is unfortunately the Bangladeshi politics has had, like, since independence, has had a long history of violence. Um, so, so we have an individual who comes in and say, well, my local level, so, you know, you might be in Dhaka and then you might be, you know, in the neighborhood in Dhaka sitting on the local council. So, you know, you're, you're quite, you know, it, it would be like being, you know, let's say on the riding executive or riding here in Canada. So, you know, fairly far down the, the and probably even lower than that, I guess, down the food chain, so to speak, in the political process. So, you know, and whose job may, you know, it's just to promote candidates and to organize rallies for candidates to speak at, other things like that that people usually do in the political process. So here's an individual who really has nothing to do with whatever the political violence is that's going on, although it's definitely a, a huge matter of debate about who is and why that violence happens and whether it's connected back to the BMP. But leaving that aside, that person who might have really just, you know, put up posters, who might have organized a rally, who might have, you know, organized for the candidate to speak, you know, at, even at the local Rotary or something like that, 
that person is is going to be caught and uh you know because they are a member of the bmp you know granted well they, they, let's just say they're a member of the bmp and that has serious consequences because of the consequences that flow from the section 341 finding you can have serious consequences i mean i've also seen you know where people again referring to the bmp they've actually gone through the process they have a protected person finding they apply for pr and then they've been found inadmissible at the at the permanent resident stage wow. and that i mean they both have profound consequences but i think if you take a look at and of course their protected person status isn't affected by that um inadmissibility finding on the pr process they're allowed to live here if they want for the rest of their life it's, i mean maybe we'll get into it i mean there is a process where they could ultimately become a permanent resident very long process but uh but in any event um there, there's nothing that prevents them from continuing to live here and you know, get their work permit or study permit or whatever they're going to do but it's obviously not a way to live and then of course you get into the issues of a family reunification it's a family is you know their, their applications are are, are denied as well so if they're if they're overseas so uh you know that's definitely been an, an issue that i've seen and that's those are the kinds of consequences that can flow there's so much in the it. bangladesh national party issue that um at one point i was even considering making it its own episode so i'm glad that you're you have all these cases to talk about because one of the things to me that's astounding about the uh, the Bangladesh National Party issue is whether or not this organization is considered a terrorist organization or not depends on the amount of evidence filed in a case and then just whether the individual officer or board members interpretation of that evidence is that this constitutes a terrorist organization and there's this weird split that then carries into the federal court Mm -hmm. where whether or not the Bangladesh Nationalist Party is a terrorist organization will depend on which judge you get at the judicial review stage, as some are mm -hmm. saying. How can we have multiple interpretations of whether this organization, this political party, is a terrorist group or not? Um, how can this not be something that needs a firm yes or no? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I know this goes back to standard of review, but... yeah. Well, yeah, it, it, it goes back to standard review, and I guess it goes back to it goes back to it. I think, as you said, uh, Steve, it goes back to you know what the record was initially, before, you know, often before the immigration division and the evidence that's there. But you know, but I say it, it, it's just a different, um, and, and it's also often how the immigration division member arrived at, at their decision. So, which go, which is directly related, obviously, to the standard of review, but, but I think it's it's, to me, I mean, and it, this is my own personal opinion, and to me, it, it's it's very difficult because, and, I, and I've seen different immigration division members give different decisions based on the same evidence. I mean, mm -hmm. that may be because I think some immigration division members do their job better and look at the evidence in a more detailed way and then can come to a reasoned conclusion that says that the evidence doesn't show that the BMP is an organization that's engaging in terrorism, even in spite of the violence 
occurs in politics in Bangladesh. But going back to the issue of the diversity of decisions, I think it's problematic because I mean, either either an organization engages in terrorism, <laughs> doesn't engage in terrorism. I don't I don't I don't think you can sort of have some what some person say it does or it doesn't. I mean, I, th I think that's really from a public, you know, from a public policy point of view. So you can't have, you know, the person from the BMP who is, um, you know, sitting in their apartment and they've been found by Section 341F and their friend, you know, two or three, da two, 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 two or three, you know, doors down the street had the exact same problem and had a different determination. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I think it also goes to the issue that I, you know, that I just spoke about at the very beginning, and I think is is discussed to some extent in Sturkey, or it is mentioned in Surish, is that you know defining terrorism is a notoriously difficult task. For sure. Yeah. So, well, it seems too like when you're talking about a place, like when you're when you're talking about making these sorts of determinations in the absence of a cogent definition of what terrorism is, and also in a place that is a conflict zone. Um, I, I know we had a presentation um, to the bar many years ago when someone was talking about making this sort of determination historically around the ANC, for example. Um, would a determination have been made that Nelson Mandela was a member of a terrorist group at the time when he was um, in the in the party that was trying to unseat the uh, the government at the time, and I think without a doubt the answer would have been yes, applying this to the strict standard. And yet, um, you know, there's no doubt that years later, when that when he became the government, then the idea that he would have been a terrorist group for having overthrown the government that was later seen to be the impressor that like that okay we've got a problem here <laughs> this is a moving standard when you're talking about um political coups that end up le leading to anti-oppression activity then um then uh, you know um, it problematizes this entire practice yeah and I, and I think that's you know big is i think it's an exact issue you know what what people it, it is very subjective it's not well this may be variation but there but it's definitely subjective in that what one person sees is can look at something and say that's terrorism another person can look at it and say that it's not terrorism mm -hmm. but it, you know and there may be cases perhaps where those lines are blurred you know but i think there are other cases where it is more clear-cut i think having a definition of terrorism in the act would be helpful because it would provide greater guidance to decision makers at the initial level and into reviewing courts rather than uh, rather than sort of trying to piece something together you know based upon what's defined in other legislations and what's come out of the jurisprudence for sure uh, do you think it would also make sense to just have it be that it has to be one of the organizations that canada has designated yeah, yeah, I think that 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 would be very helpful because I mean I'm not 100% familiar with the process that goes that that one goes that the government goes through, but I think that they do that. I would think based upon intelligence and other reports that they have <laughs> about these organizations before they put them before they put them on that list. Because in it also some of the other, though, sorry. Oh, go ahead. I was just also thinking that the idea of the definition being one about 
rebellion against the civilian population, a rebellion against the government seems to be like a strange standard because that assumes that the, like, who is the civilian population? Who is the government? Whether or not, like, having it instead built on an anti-oppression model, you know, like, because the, the purpose of the refugee board is to consider whether or not there's persecution on the basis of the enumerated grounds. And so if, for example, the task for a Nelson Mandela were to be to say, I am, I am doing these activities because I am trying to um, speak up for, like, to, to voice my concern for my own oppression, then it's, it's, it's defining whether or not those activities are being done from an anti-oppression standpoint, as opposed to, um, you know, uh, you know, um, and I, I don't know, I mean, perhaps that would make the conversation at least one that is something that the, the board or the adjudicator can grapple with, as opposed to just looking at who is the establishment and is this anti-establishment. Right. Yeah, I think that would help. And I think as well, I mean, some people, I think, I think most people have in their mind, um, I think most people, a lot of people probably have in their mind, you know, what they would look at as terrorism. And I think really, you know, and that would be sort of indiscriminate attacks against people, you know, whose very purpose is to sow fear amongst the amongst the population. So, you know, you're attacking a group of people who really have nothing to do with with whatever it is, whatever you're trying to promote or whatever you're trying to change. Um, and in some cases, might might or might not agree with with the group. But you know, that's really I think you know when people think about terrorism. You know, so so what is that? That's like, you know, you know, setting off bombs in, in, in a shopping mall right. or on a beachfront or, uh, you know, expo- you know, or, you know, putting a bomb, you know, in, in a car, um, again, in a crowded place where they know they're where they know there's going to be a lot of people at a particular point in time. So yeah. and going back but, to like the BMP in terms, of, in terms of like those actions, my understanding is that it all stems from whether or not a Hartal is considered terrorism or not. And right, a hard call exactly. is essentially a general strike. Correct. Some of which, either deliberately or not, which is a dispute, may have turned violent. Is that more or less where this stems from? That's exactly where it stems from. So it's right. these articles, which are a general strike, um, which, yeah, w- w- which can turn violent. And that's where this all stems from, 100%. And so, you know, t- t- to me, again, and so some have said even, you know, causing and this this could perhaps be in the criminal code definition, but causing economic harm can be terrorism as well. And uh, and to me, that's, you know, that that I, I, I don't I think some judges haven't accepted that, you know, because, you know, general general strikes can be accepted as as a an appropriate um, civil action to protest, you know, against the government. And as long as it's done peacefully uh, and, and governments, you know, which I, you know, I've, I've argued previously, look, governments like international governments using economic sanctions against other governments all the time, you know, for that very purpose to, to compel them to take, to, to go down a certain road. So, 
to say that a group of people within a country can't take economic action uh, if the government is not listening to the majority of the to, to people and their views you know is a way of trying to get the government to listen i i think it should not not be yeah. characterized as terrorism well and one of the weird distinctions in the act is how under like the act distinguishes between governments that commit terrorism and i guess everyone else because section 35 b says a permanent resident or foreign national is inadmissible on grounds of violating human or international rights for being a prescribed senior official in the service of a government that, in the opinion of the minister, engages or has engaged in terrorism. So when it comes to government, they don't want individual officers saying, well, this government has committed terrorism or not, only the prescribed ones that are in Enforcement Manual 2. But for everyone else, it can be a little bit of a free-for-all up to the discretion of the officer. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part about the the membership component is that um, the idea, you know, the discussion that we're having, um, you know, what we're brainstorming toward is that um, one's participation should um, have to have a substantive component to it so that sweeping the floors within this organization shouldn't carry the same consequences or operating on somebody who's been injured in one of these um, circumstances shouldn't bear the same consequences as somebody who is actually participating in these random acts of violence. So this is sort of the other element that we're speaking to. But I think that one of the things that we are seeing engendered in much of immigration enforcement policy is the need to make these types of prosecutions kind of easier for the department. And, you know, um, what we tend to hear from the courts more and more is that like having to find this type of evidence is too difficult for the department and therefore simply having to establish that they are a member of that organization suffices for this type of inadmissibility to, to lie. And I think that Again, um, my view is that we need to kind of problematize that again because um, because the consequences are so severe. And um, to go back to the example that you raised, Hart, about like when somebody has already been found to be a convention refugee, and then all of a sudden they're a convention refugee, but they're like forever inadmissible, and there might be other members of their family who now are still in this limbo state. I just would love for you to speak a bit more because I think that for a lot of people who think of Canada as being this great humanitarian state, they don't recognize that once you've been found to be a convention refugee, there's still after that a permanent residence process. Um, so even some immigration lawyers don't recognize that like, that's not it. Right. <laughs> you know, and so I think when I talk to to other immigration lawyers about the fact that like, you know, there's still miles to go and you could still, um, you know, that 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 still doesn't mean that your family is going to be in, in, able to reunite with you and what happens when then there are other members of the family that are still left in limbo after that fact. Um, I'd just love to hear more about that so that, that others can can appreciate the severity of those consequences. Yeah, so, that, so those consequences, as I said, are severe. So you have somebody that goes through the, pro, the process and they're found to be a refugee and they're very excited, obviously, and they file their PR application and then they get a letter saying, well, we think you might be inadmissible under Section 341F because you're a member of the, the BMP. And then they have a chance to respond. 
I think the other issue on the sort of PR side is that's more of an administrative process. There isn't an oral, there isn't necessarily an oral interview, you know, as opposed to if they're doing it at the front end, you do have an admissibility hearing before a member of the immigration division. Uh, but I think on, on the other side, uh, you know, if, if, a, if an officer is going to make that allegation, then you'd want to, before responding, say, well, what, what are you relying on? Because sometimes they just send the letter here. We think that this is what you are, uh, but you need to know what they're relying on so you can respond to that properly. But let's say the person is found to be inadmissible under that section, then they, there is ministerial relief under section 42.1. So you can ask for, um, I guess it's the Minister of Public, it's the Minister of Public Safety to uh, relieve you of that inadmissibility finding if it's not contrary to the national interest. It's a very so, quick process from what I understand. Yeah, very quick. <laughs> Deprioritize <laughs> them. So, and, so, like, so, so here you have somebody, response. like let's say you have a, you know, somebody, you know, who's here, who's been found and his spouse and children are, are back in Bangladesh. Uh, and so, so here's the ministerial process, which, you know, is what the Department of Justice will often offer offer up when they say, well, this is too broad. Well, well, no, you've got the ministerial process. So we have this process so that people who really aren't intended to be caught, they have this avenue to get out of it. But I think as Steve says, it's, you know, this is a four or five, six year process. Certainly in my experience, often it doesn't get going until you bring an application for mandamus, you know, at which point the Department of Justice come back with, well, sometimes come back with an offer of settlement, uh, you know, with some kind of timeline in which this is going to be considered. But, you know, assuming that that person has been in Canada, let's say, you know, by the time they get this determination, they may have been, may have been in Canada three, four or five years. Now they're waiting like another five years before they can even apply for permanent residence which means, you know, potentially separation from family for like a decade. You know, you think if you, in, in many cases, some people are leaving home and are fleeing their country and coming here seeking safety, their kids might be two or three years old. So, you know, it, it, it that's, you know, it's, it's, it's an untenable consequence for them. I am. and Especially I, and I, when this person has been found to be a refugee. Right. So they right. left and they've been determined to be, truly fleeing persecution and so presumably in most of those cases their family are in the same situation and they haven't found a viable or attainable state of protection so they're in it <laughs> exactly and so it, it has really profound consequences and so it, I, I think you know this idea that well it's broad because that you know we want to make sure we're not going to miss anybody which i think is I guess the, the idea or the policy behind having a fairly broad sweep, you know, it's better that, I suppose the, the thought process being that it's better that we catch everybody that we want to catch. And if we happen to catch some people who really, we don't really intend to catch, that's okay, rather than not catching everybody. But that, that needs to be caught. But I think the mechanism, so, but in any event, it's way too broad and the mechanism that's available, it's not really real. For people. It's dysfunctional. Completely. Yeah, you know, because for them to wait that long to be reunited with their family, for their family to be able to come here and be reunited with them, and then even after they get the ministerial relief, then they've got to apply for permanent residence. So you know, you've got years and years and years in which this is going to take, and yeah, it's 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 not a real relief, and I think it can 
it, it undoubtedly causes um, it undoubtedly causes uh, serious. Um, Harm. I think serious harm, like serious psychological harm. I think. Yeah. For- and kids can age out, can and do age out, so that by the time that this relief, if and when it's granted, right. they can no longer be sponsorable. That's right. And marriages break down, and like all sorts of harm occurs. So. Um, so it's, it's 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 I think it has huge huge consequences for those who are involved. Uh, and it's uh, it's really I think you know I think it is it is a un- completely untenable situation. Completely do you untenable. get these forty two point one approvals? Like, do they exist? <laughs> I feel well, like they're like the goals. I have uh, I, I I have uh, um, I've got a few of the of the BNP ongoing, but they're relatively recent, so no no decision yet. I mean, in one experience I had, it was in section thirty seven. Um, we had to bring an application for uh, we waited several years and you know we wrote uh, it's, we're, we're going to get back to you we're going to get back to you so we brought an application for mandamus and justice um so justice can so this was not a bnp and not section 34 but still ministerial yes. relief justice um justice can consent consented to a timeline which they have more or less followed and and we did actually so at this point we actually did get a recommendation against the president of this CBSA, um, a, rec- a recommendation to grant ministerial relief in that case. So hopefully we're going to see a successful conclusion to that this year sometime. Um, yeah. So it and does what is not- what is roughly your overall timeline since the um, since the process began? Well, in that particular case, we we started that process in twenty sixteen, I think, and yeah. then. We brought the application last year, but a year ago, roughly. Yeah. Almost exactly a year ago. But the timelines, even they had set out, were not like we had to negotiate on the timelines because they gave us like some, you know, ridiculously long timelines for the, yeah. you know, for them to respond to our our representations, which we had made several over the years. Uh, and then they came back and they asked for some extensions. Uh, and we managed to negotiate those, but. Uh, it's interesting when you ask around in the bar. Yeah. And even in that case, Section 37, the, 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 it's a husband and wife. It's a spousal situation, but uh, a spousal sponsorship situation. But they've been residing outside of Canada somewhere else. But in a place where neither of them have any family support and they have a young family and a child with fairly, fairly involved medically. And... Um, you know, and it's been hugely stressful, like hugely psychologically stressful. And even for the clients that I have here that we're starting to work on these, it's it's uh, it's difficult. We are in one case going to try to see if we can get a TRP for the family. It's a wife. Uh, he has a wife and son in Bangladesh to come here. So we'll see how that goes, you know, pending a decision on the ministerial relief, because, you know, in my view, you know, from almost all these BMP members and this you know, at least the ones I've seen, I can't speak for all of them. I, I can't see any argument that it would be against the national interest not to allow them to stay in Canada. The Thanks. whole like assessment, like one of the disappointing things in the faster removal of foreign criminals act from, I think 2013 or 14 was when they made it so that if you were inadmissible to Canada for membership in a terrorist organization, 
you could no longer do the humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Mm-hmm. So one of the cases that I was involved in, it's actually the case that got me to uh, know Peter Edelman because we worked together on this file, was for an individual from El Salvador named Jose Figueroa, um, yeah, who has a... <laughs> yeah, he's 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 uh, he's been Wasn't in the news. Student or something. In, in... He went to law school after he yeah. got his permanent residence. Yeah. So he was um, he when he was in university was a member of the FMLN, which was an El Salvador kind of left wing political movement that also had a, I guess, a violent wing to it as well. Um, but his role within the FMLN was as a political activist. So he never took up arms. He would basically espouse their political philosophy at school and university and encourage people to join the FMLN. And it's not clear if it was ever distinguished between the um, political wing and the military wing. Um, as Deanna was mentioning earlier, in terms of oppression, when we were working on this case, we got the support of uh, several local Conservative Party of Canada MPs, um, because they rightly viewed this as like a struggle between a military junta and the FMLN and the churches. And this was sort of like that. I mean, Nelson Mandela is an extreme characterization, but it's sort of that uh, the battle against a military junta by a more liberal movement. Um, and then after the Civil War, the FMLN actually wins becomes government and uh, he teaches people who are in the violent wing how to reintegrate. Anyway, he flash forward, he comes to Canada. Um, I think he has a refugee claim. He had an HNC claim, but you know, his actions of being involved in the student wing of this organization 20 years previous determined him to be inadmissible for membership in a terrorist organization. The HNC is denied, and one of the things that I thought was useful, and what I was hoping would serve as a useful precedent until they completely waived the ability of people inadmissible for this category to apply for humanitarian and compassionate grounds, was Justice Mosley said, like, look, we really, like, this section is broad, and officers have to consider the nature of the organization, what their involvement was, um, because, like, while the section sounds severe, it does not necessarily always capture severe actions, um, which was a super helpful principle that was pretty much immediately swept away by the <laughs> legislation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as, as you said, Steve, um, the, the amendments to Section 25 affected not just the terrorist provision, but organized criminality and What's the third one? Human rights violations? Um, was that the third? And we haven't spoken, we haven't done a podcast on the human rights violations, but we have on organized criminality, which, you know, we alluded to earlier on this podcast. It means criminal activities that involved three piece of persons or more, um, you know, that very loose kind of common law definition. And we've, we've spoken about many of the problems associated with this terrorism provision. So cutting off access to the equitable relief of, of uh, the decision makers uh, has become very problematic because, uh, because involvement can be so, um, so limited and um, so peripheral based on what we've discussed today. Yeah, so you can't get, that's another barrier for these people is they can't 
get a, they can't get exempted from that section on humanitarian grounds, uh, and they have to go the ministerial relief route. Yeah. Where, I want oh, yeah. to where, to a certain extent, those humanitarian considerations, I guess, under agraria can be considered to a certain extent, although really looking at the national interest is primarily what they're doing. Yeah. I want to circle back to the designation of the Proud Boys as a terrorist organization and um, a couple kind of predictions for the future, issues for the future that that might raise. So the first is that uh, the reason this group was designated, um, and I'll just read on its description, is that it's a neo-fascist organization that engages in political violence formed in 2016. They espouse misogynistic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, white supremacist ideologies. They have semi-autonomous chapters. They've openly encouraged, planned, and conducted violent activities. Specifically, they regularly attend Black Lives Matter protests as counter-protesters and engage in violence with them. On January 6th, they were involved in a pivotal insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. So there's several things um, that come out of that. First, the, the first one I want to touch on, and it's something that I've been asked a lot, more ties into another organization that was involved at the storming of the uh, U.S. Capitol, which was QAnon, um, which, as far as I understand, is not a super... It's not real. Like, well, this is is the QAnon an organization? So from what I understand, QAnon is just Facebook groups, essentially, until Facebook kicked them out. So maybe 4chan or 8chan groups yeah. or Telegram groups that don't really have a structure as far as I understand. But everyone is just, you know, posting a shared ideology on these message boards. Do we think that that could count as an organization for the purpose of this thread. We'll ignore whether believing in a global pedophile conspiracy <laughs> ring where Donald Trump is the white knight against them. Yeah. What what exactly that is, but like the the mere notion of can being a I guess a Facebook group member results uh in you being a member of a terrorist organization or even being a Facebook group. I don't know if like what's the one below this? The Russian Imperial Movement or Proud Boys or any of these other groups, Taliban, if they have a Facebook and you're a member of a Facebook group, is that uh, membership in that organization? Well, I think um, potentially uh, I could see somebody could make that argument that, you know, look, there's a question about whether or not QAnon is an organization in and of itself, because it is. I mean, it's, I don't even know if it's really an ideology. It's like a conspiracy theory that yeah. people have latched on to. And it's not even really even an ideology. So I think to label that organization a group, I think, would be a stretch. Proud Boys may be a little bit different. But I noticed you said organization a group. Did you mean group an organization? Because if it's an organization. Yeah, so, so I, I would say that it's. Like, I, I wouldn't say that people who are subscribing to QAnon are part of an organization. It is, you know, a, 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 an Internet conspiracy theory that people have believed in and uh, and believe, you know, certainly, as Steve has pointed out, certain certain 
aspects of that theory. You know, to say that that's even an ideology, um, I think would be a stretch. And certainly that this is somehow an organization, I think would be a stretch. I think I, think I would say the difference probably between QAnon and Proud Boys is Proud Boys has a little bit more of a structure. So they have meetings and, you know, semi-autonomous groups and they get together and they discuss, you know, what they're going to do. So. And secondarily, uh, is QAnon engaging in acts? Like I think Proud Boys is like cohesive in the sense that they are engaging in discernible acts, whereas QAnon is like. And I I believe Proud Boys has tried to, um, like, well, at least, I mean, from what I understand, tried to specifically target uh, former military people, I think specifically for their former military background, and certainly some of them, some of those people showed up at the insurrection on, on, on January 6th. But yeah, are they engaging in acts? Yeah, I would say if people showed up at, on January 6th, believing in QAnon, I don't know that you could tie their belief, well, maybe you could tie their belief in that to them showing up at, 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 at the Capitol on January 6th. But it, it just is very, um, where is maybe, it, 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 amorphous, it's just sort of... More nebulous know, there. Nebulous. So, yeah. Right. Does the fact that these threads have moderators change that in terms of a hierarchy within the Facebook or whatever, the Reddit or the 4chan? Like, or is it just, you know, would you be surprised if the argument gets made by some border officer or IRB member? Would I would I be surprised? No, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Very little surprises us these days, yeah, I think. I wouldn't be surprised that, that the border The surprise o meter yeah. on a on your average immigration lawyer is pretty uh... <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, so, so you know, I th- I think going back to the question of face let's say organizations that have more you know, Taliban, for example, you know, could that could you be seen to be a member of the Taliban because you joined a Taliban Facebook group? I would say that, yeah, it's very possible that a Canada Board of Services agency officer would make that argument. Well, I think Jason Kenney, I I can't remember if he did it just in speaking or if it was passed down to the officers that George Galloway might have been inadmissible for membership in a terrorist group for a donation to Hamas. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, this sounds really crude, but like, I mean, I've had, uh, you know, clients who've been accused of misrepresentation based on the fact that they had lingerie in their backpack and they said they were coming for a conference, you know? So uh, I think it's a pretty thin thread that's looked for <laughs> in terms of evidence, uh, you know, of any kind of thing. So, so yeah, I mean, being part of a Facebook group seems to me like pretty good, solid evidence, I would imagine. <laughs> I, I would think so too. I mean, you know, I, I would say it would have to be, you know, participation in that group, maybe not that somebody visited that group at some point in time mm-hmm. but i think you'd have to have some kind of evidence of that participation in, in that facebook group but i think that certainly would be argued by canada for a services agency to be membership in a group because again it's a very broad a very broad term mm-hmm. and and certainly with proud boys again evidence again of 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 uh, of participation in online groups with, with respect to that organization or obviously participation in in-person meetings as well. I mean, QAnon is uh, certainly is an interesting topic as to whether that could be caught by Section 34.1F. 
I would like to think that that would be a difficult argument for this, at this point anyway for the CBSA to make. I mean, we don't even know who Q is, so you know, <laughs> you know, I think you know, you know, I, I think that it would be a difficult argument for them to make because then I think you're really going down a slippery slope, and you know about what people do or search on the internet. Mm. Uh, leading them to be inadmissible to Canada and also latching on to what really are conspiracy theories as a means of making people inadmissible, I think is also, uh, it's a slippery slope. And I think it's really outside of the intent of what Section 341F is. I mean, I, I think definitely Section 341F, I'm not going to sort of maybe, maybe go into a whole discussion at this point about Proud Boys, but definitely dem domestic terrorism, you know, is 100% caught by Section 341F, and if um, organizations are uh, attempting to intimidate the population or civilian population for the purpose of making changes in the government, that that would would be captured by, you know, the terrorism in Section 341F. I think that would definitely be the case. So I guess the question becomes, you know, is that what the Proud Boys are doing? And I think the, the question also becomes, which we've discussed before in this goes back perhaps to the BMP is, you know, is the Proud Boys actually um, promoting and sanctioning the violence or is it rogue members who are part of this organization that are that, that are doing it? And I guess that would, you know, perhaps, you know, be the defense if somebody, one of the defenses, you know, aside from whether it's an organization um, and membership about whether or not they're actually promoting these violent activities. I mean, that, you know, and that gets into the evidence of, of what they have about whether they're organizing events whose purpose is to perpetrate violence. Well, and that raised after the, um, the insurrection at the Capitol, I know several immigration lawyers were commenting, well, if the BMP can be found to be a terrorist organization for encouraging a general strike, that then leads to violence that may not be sanctioned. What the heck happened on January 6th in Washington, um, where you know now former president and member of the Republican Party Donald Trump sort of sanctioned and then sort of didn't sanction what went on and um, yeah. yeah. So so I think I mean that crossed my mind a hundred percent. I mean, um, you know, at the time that that happened and linking it to the BMP because or, or these cases of the BMP, because it, it, it there definitely was a fomenting or an encouragement of violence <laughs> or, you know, you know, again, you got to, you know, I, I suppose it's what one puts on the words that he said on that day. But there definitely is and there could be an equivalence there. But but then it goes back to probably more saying that. That's not terrorism, and what the BMP, you know, and, and what and that the BMP is not also engaging in terrorism. In other words, you know, aside from the Proud Boys, you know, the question becomes: if you have a leader of the party standing up there, you know, you have to be strong, and we're going to walk up to the Capitol together or whatever, and uh, that that's not necessarily, you know, he he is the leader of the party, but you know, does does the entire party endorse that sort of as an organization? Is a whole other question, 
and and this is similarly at the issue with the BMP. So does does the party as an organization endorse the violence? Do, do the leaders of the party endorse the violence or promote the violence? I mean, to me, the, the answer to that question is no, and certainly some immigration division members have found that. And I mean, and, and again, you know, again, when you get into the kind of violence we saw on January 6th and even in Bangladesh, it's often difficult to, you know, pinpoint who's responsible for it and whether there are outside elements that are responsible for it. But but there definitely is an equivalence between the two. I, I agree. In other words, you know, if you're saying that members of the BMP are, are, are part of an organization that engages in terrorism, can, you know, can you say the same thing? about the Republican Party. I mean, uh, you know, that's the, you know, and I, I think most people would say the answer to that question is no, it's probably the right answer because the right answer I think with the BMP is that it's not an organization engaging in terrorism. Yeah, I mean, for me, it just comes back to this shouldn't be left to the individual officer because obviously the, and I'm surprised actually there hasn't like what's going on uh, that there hasn't been more of a bit of an outcry from I mean, I guess Bangladesh's non-BMP parties probably love this, but but that, you know, the implications of a somebody at Canada's immigration department determining or the Immigration Refugee Board determining that the Republican Party is a group that is committed in terrorism would immediately attract a lot of attention and probably be overturned politically. And I do question why this is left to individual officers. And I mean, the other way it could go is like in this description of why the Proud Boys has been designated, they apparently get into fights with Black Lives Matter. Until they were designated, the only thing I really knew about the Proud Boys was that sometimes you'd read in the news that in Portland, the Proud Boys fought Antifa almost every week, it seemed. And like, it could just, I don't know as much about, I mean, I know as little of what Antifa is, as whether as what Proud Boys are, but these this inconsistency, like Antifa, from what I understand, is also a bunch of semi-autonomous groups that some may be violent, some not. And is this best left to the individual officer? Yeah, I, just, uh, I would say that I agree with that hundred uh, percent. And I, I think I, I think there is, in my view, I think there's some argument at some point to be made about consistency, you know, when you're talking about these organizations and, and the BMP is a good example, because as we pointed out this afternoon, there, there, there is inconsistency in the federal court. There's inconsistency amongst officers, there's inconsistency among immigration division members. And I think an argument that, you know, in, in the, when you're making a decision, in this kind of case, there needs to be some kind of consistency and, and probably, know, better um, guidelines uh, or, you know, about how that determination is made, but there should be consistency for sure. I'm getting stuck here and perhaps you think, you might think that I'm, I'm, I'm on the wrong tangent, but it strikes me that the whole element of trying to figure out the identity of the group and the designation of that group doesn't elevate, but rather weighs down the analysis you know if if you're looking at the individual conduct of an individual um 
this particular person did this in the, this specific activity, does this specific activity constitute terrorism or not? And that particular conduct is going to be measured based on whether or not this was a random act of violence. But I think that once you get into this whole thing about who is the group, is this group as a whole conducted, is this uh, is this group as a whole conducting terrorist activity? Is this person acting on behalf of the group or outside of what the group is doing? It just kind of feels to me like, is this actually helping? You know, because then you have to figure out whether or not the group as a whole is terrorist or not terrorist and whether or not they're acting on behalf of or outside of the the overall mandate of the group. And I'm just not sure how that helps. Um, but if you were to just leave it to like, okay, here's this individual, like, because you know, like if you're talking about the Republican Party, for example, and you're trying to figure out this person, this person can commit a terrorist act, whether or not they're acting on behalf of or as representative of that party. Um, to me, I, I don't know, I just um, I just feel like it makes the whole process so entirely cumbersome. I just feel like there should be a definition of terrorism that doesn't mean that you have to pin the whole party and figure out whether it's onside or offside. It's whether or not it's a random act of violence that is not um you you know that it's that it's that it's random and that it's um it's done i, I don't know it, it just um it's i feel like it's overly complex and um requires you to kind of throw entirely the baby out with the bathwater or something like that um so i just keep getting stuck here no i i think that's that's a good point you know because there, i mean look, there are definitely some organizations where you know you know who's who's primary purpose in promoting their primary way in promoting their ideology would be is, is through violent means. And so those are obviously not obviously, but they may be more they're easier ones, maybe. For sure. That maybe is like if it's this organization, well, then yeah. that certainly helps yeah. because we can but say. I, yeah, but I think definitely others. There are definitely others where that's not the case. And, you know, perhaps. Looking at really what that particular person has done as opposed to the fact that they're just a member of that organization something that can be looked at and again having some kind of definition terrorism would be helpful yeah and i think that the whole notion of what's happened to the republican party there are tons of republicans right now absolutely grief struck with what's happened to the republican <laughs> party and the idea that i mean of course you could never designate it as there as a terrorist organization right now but that doesn't mean that terrorism isn't actually occurring in the name of that party and at this point in time and so um I don't know. I think that the idea that it's so incredibly tethered to the organization and to how that organization is going to be designated is actually to the detriment of this whole area of uh, of the act, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Look, I, I think, you know, I think certainly the BNP cases are very problematic from my point of view. And I think it's, it's a stretch what they did. I, I think part of it does have to go to um, as a cola and how I think that made um, exclusion more difficult. So, you know, this was an easier way to capture people because the evidentiary, I mean, I think as we pointed out earlier, the evidentiary record has to be a lot less, uh, you know, as far as the individual person is concerned. So, um, so, so I think it, it, I think that the BNP cases, there may be others, but the BNP are one, you know, certainly ones I'm very familiar with is like a way too broad of a, sw a sweep. And yeah. um, 
it just it, I think it shows really in my view anyway the failings of the section for uh, sure and, and well it's why. like what we all learned in law school hard ta- hard cases make for bad law and I think yeah. that this whole terrorism section has made for terrible terrible law uh, because we're now trying to um, come up with some single standard from something that defies that kind of standardization and I think it's not that the that the notion defies standardization, but the way that it has been um, codified and the way that it's come up in the in the common law, um, I just feel like it um, it's gone completely in the wrong direction, and it's it's trying to um, it's trying to codify the wrong things, and and and, and it's doing it in the broadest way. Um, but it's doing so with an with the goal of prosecutorial, like ease of prosecutorial um, facility, if you know what I'm saying. So to make it as easy as possible to make a designation, and and that has has made the the section um, both meaningless and incredibly oppressive. No, I, I would agree with that. Well, yeah, it's based upon the notion of cast a super wide net, cast yeah. a very broad wide net for the most serious inadmissibility and then you'll have this out clause of the national interest exemption right but, which is almost this, impossible this, to access like yes yeah. and for those who are it's not like we aren't like it's not that the refusal rate is high it's that they never go anywhere yeah um and for the most part just sit because it actually has to be signed in this like now by bill blair basically because it has to go up to the minister Right. But I think we should look at the number of cases that have actually been approved. And I think it's really low just because they they don't get filed because people feel kind of hopeless about, you know, the prospects of getting it approved in a reasonable time frame. I don't know. I mean, I just I remember pulling that stat one time and the numbers of approvals were were pathetically low. Um, you know, um, so I don't know if that's still the case, but um, I pulled it years ago. And I just remembered at one point just canvassing the membership and I was talking to people who are in this area of like refugee practice enforcement, you know, doing organized crim. And um, I was really surprised to hear how many people had actually seen a positive um, decision made under this section. And uh, it was disheartening. I want to go back, maybe the final question to QAnon, because it's something that has since arisen. And this is, it's not hard to envision a real life example of this. You're advising someone and they are filling out the IMM 569, the Schedule A. Right. And it asks, have you ever been a member of an organization? And they say, I believe in QAnon. Is it misrepresentation to not write it on the form? It's a very difficult question. <laughs> um, if you're asking, I would say no. I, I would think it's not misrepresentation not to write on the form because uh, I, I don't think that the belief you know, in a crazy theory um, necessarily makes falls within the parameters of that question. I, yeah. I, I agree. I don't... I, I... And I think we can rely on our podcast for why we reach that. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for uh, coming on today. Thank you for having Um, me. I feel like the state of the law isn't going to get resolved any clearer in the future, in the near future at least. And I'm sure we will probably have more. uh, We'll see where it goes. Because I know some in the media have said, well, the 
designation of the Proud Boys seems to broaden what's considered to be a terrorist organization Um, and whether, you know, the individual visa officers go interpret it that way as well and start going one step further into just being part of a hate group or something like that. Do you guys think it broadens anything? I don't know enough about what they actually do. (laughs) I guess that's like, I don't like, because when I, if it was just, well, they encourage people. I mean, it's kind of like the heart tall stuff where if they just encourage people to go out and riot and they just encourage people to, I mean, counter protesting with violence is, I don't know what I would classify it as, um, but I don't know enough about them. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, it's one of those things where it's like, it's kind of like the debate over whether the, like, do you reserve the word terrorism for really the strictest of the strictest, like, offenses and political violence? And it's kind of like the debate over genocide and the use of the word cultural genocide and what is a genocide. Um, so I I don't know where I fall on that debate, and I mm. don't know enough about the Proud Boys to yeah. uh, really, like... Yeah. I think that's the smarter answer, Steve. I would have been much more impetuous, but um, I think you're actually you're smarter. Yeah. No, and I don't. I, like I know, but I literally I don't know. Like no, I know. I, I know you're really right. What they're involved. In. I know more about QAnon than I know about the Proud Boys. <laughs> so, yeah. But cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on today. Thank hope you. Hope the weather uh, gets a bit warmer in Toronto. I hope oh. so too. <laughs> okay. okay. Send awesome. us some warm weather. Mm.